This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Great Escape from 1963 is our tribute to Veterans Day this week, directed by John Sturgis, written by James Clavell and W.R. Burnett, starring Steve McQueen, James Garner, Richard Attenborough, James Donald, Donald Pleasance, James Coburn, and Charles Bronson. So, Dad, we've roughly now covered six World War II films to this point, with this being the seventh. The Dirty Dozen, Saving Private Ryan, The Bridge on the River Kwai, Inglorious Bastards, Victory, and A Bridge Too Far. Is this the best World War II film? No. It's possibly the second best. I would still have to rate Saving Private Ryan better. Although this one is probably in the top three. I I will give kudos to another film that we have yet to cover, which is a William Holden film, Stalag 17. And why would you still put Saving Private Ryan above this? I think it's more realistic. I think this kind of polishes some of the horror, the more difficult aspect. I mean, I think that it was worse in real life than it was portrayed in the movie. I think they polished it a bit. And so as far as being authentic, I think Saving Private Ryan is much more raw and real. I guess in what way? To the horrors of war, or are we talking in the horrors of the Germans? I think both. I think Saving Prior of Ryan has more, it's more realistic and more raw as far as what is involved in war and what takes place and the conflict among soldiers. This is a little polished and glorified, and I think it makes some of these characters more heroic than they probably would have been in real life. So in other words, this is too lighthearted a tone to be considered the greatest World War II movie. It has an element of, I guess, lightheartedness to it that does not exist in Saving Private Ryan. So you would agree with the sentiment of Oliver Stone that most of the World War II movies tend to glorify that as the good war, whereas most of the Vietnam films that we've discussed to this point usually paint a much more horrifying picture. Correct, because the Vietnam films tend to emphasize the internal struggle that people had versus what they believed was their duty and their service to country versus what they perceived as being an unjust and possibly immoral war because it made no sense or people had a difficult time understanding what the purpose was. On that note, this film is cited a lot for its historical inaccuracy, particularly on some of the very 
basic details, but also for its over-glorification of the American effort in helping with this plan, where none of them actually was an escapee of the actual great escape as it happened in real life. Do you think that this is a film that is lesser because it went through the Hollywood machine that wanted to make a movie that was more for an American-centric audience, even though this movie is very highly celebrated and appreciated within the UK? I believe that's a pretty accurate characterization because, I mean, the Americans were there, or a few Americans were there, but they ultimately got transferred to a different Stalag during this time frame, so they really weren't actively involved in the escape. I mean, we had to have a certain level of star power to have this film catered to the expectations and tastes of an American audience. And so we had to put Americans in at least a couple of the more significant roles. Even the fact that you have James Colburn, who was an American actor, he's playing an Australian, was done, I think, in order to increase or make a little more palatable for the American audience. So then I wonder, the biggest star in this movie is clearly Steve McQueen. Is this his best movie then? I have not seen all of his movies. It could be. It's at least one of his top three. One film that I can think of that would potentially be better would have been The Thomas Crown Affair. And I'm I'm drawing a blank as to some of the other films. Unfortunately, his career was shorter than it should have been because of cancer. So it's hard to say. I think he had the potential to have a pretty good career for at least another 10 or 15 years beyond his lifetime, but didn't because of his early death. So, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that I probably saw half a dozen times or more with my dad. This is one of my dad's favorite films. I mean, this film came out about the same time I was born. Back in the late 60s, 70s, we would have the Sunday night movie, the Tuesday night movie, whatever. Each network had a movie night, and they would show a movie. And whenever this film was on, which was at least about once a year on one of the networks, my dad would be watching, and I would stop and watch it. My dad had a proclivity towards Steve McQueen. He really liked James Garner, which is one of the reasons why he was a huge fan of the Rockford Files when Garner did television in the 70s and early 80s. Every time I watch this, I can remember sitting, because in my house, the TV always sat on one wall, and there was a rocker on the right side of the living room and the couch on the left side. My dad always sat for as long as I can remember the end of the couch away from the TV. And I sat in the rocker and we would watch this film. As with most conversations with my dad, it was pretty silent. We would occasionally look at each other and nod. But this was a film that we always enjoyed. So every time I watch this, it brings back a certain element of nostalgia. So first off, conversations with your dad is an oxymoron. <laughs> you actually have to, I don't know, respond or ask a question once in a while for that to be a conversation. 
<laughs> he was a man of few words. That's the understatement of the century. If few means like one or two, then yes. Anyway, did he like Steve McQueen so much because he basically looked like Steve McQueen with a flat top? I don't know. I think I think to a certain extent, Steve McQueen was kind of a rebel. The motorcycles, the, the race cars, the kind of, he had his whole persona was based upon being anti-establishment. And I think that my, my dad always kind of visioned himself of being similar. I wonder sometimes, because I kind of have an attitude of me against the man, the, the government, the big guy, whoever it is, whether I inherited that from my mother, who always seemed to want to fight everybody, or my dad, who just seemed to want to basically thumb their nose at everybody. Or maybe it's a combination of both. Or it's just a Napoleon complex from you being short. Yeah. Okay. That you passed on to your son. Yeah, well, okay. Maybe. So then what is this movie about? It's overcoming your circumstances and envisioning or seeing your mission or your goal or your purpose being greater than your circumstances and finding a way to achieve even when facing overwhelming odds for being a American centric and somewhat American produced film that really puts several big Americans at the top of its star list, Bronson, Coburn, Garner, and McQueen. This really has a British attitude to it, a stiff upper lip kind of, we're going to break the establishment type of attitude despite everything that was going on around them. And so, yes, I agree that that's really the sentiment of the movie is this kind of confidence and defiance in the face of adversity. I think that's ultimately what the film is about. And I mean, because of the nature of the story and the fact that it was a war film and they're prisoners, this is a very masculine film. This film speaks to men in general who feel at times that their circumstances are overwhelming, that they don't have any control because things seem to be stacked up against them. And you get a very good feeling, a, a rush almost, of these people had it even worse than I did. They were able to overcome their circumstances and achieve something. And I think it speaks to a lot of men. It's Oscar Wilde's Men Living Quiet Lives of Desperation. I think this film speaks to that aspect. So let's give a little bit more background on the movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In World War II, a group of Allied officers who have a history of escape are placed together in a high-security prison by the German Luftwaffe, as these men have various skills to plan, organize, and carry out elaborate escape plans. The Prisoners' Escape Committee, the X organization, led by Big X, RAF squadron leader Roger Bartlett, Richard Attenborough, soon plans a tunnel escape of 250 men. Among the group are American Flight Lieutenant Bob Hendley, James Garner, Australian Flying Officer Sedgwick, James Colburn, Flight Lieutenants Danny Valinsky, Charles Bronson, and Willie Dix, John Layton, 
and Captain Virgil Hiltz, Steve McQueen. Thank you. Cast for this movie, John Sturgis as director, James Clavell and W.R. Burnett as writers, Elmer Bernstein as musical composer, Steve McQueen as Captain Virgil Hiltz, the Cooler King, James Garner as Flight Lieutenant Bob Hendley, the Scrounger, Richard Attenborough as Squadron Leader Roger Bartlett, Big Axe, James Donald as Group Captain Ramsey, the SBO, Charles Bronson as Flight Lieutenant Danny Walensky, Tunnel King, Donald Pleasance as Flight Lieutenant Colin Blythe, the Forger, James Coburn as Flying Officer Louis Sedgwick, the Manufacturer, Hans Mesmer as Oberst von Luger, the Commandant, David McCallum as Lieutenant Commander Eric Ashley Pitt, Dispersal, Gordon Jackson as Flight Lieutenant Andy McDonald, Intelligence, John Layton as Flight Lieutenant Willie Dix, Tunnel King, Angus Lenny as Flying Officer Archie Ives, The Mole, Nigel Stock as Flight Lieutenant Dennis Cavendish, The Surveyor, and Robert Graff as Werner the Ferret. Recognition for this movie? The Great Escape was wide released on July 4th, 1963. It grossed a rough $11.7 million that year, making it the 16th highest grossing film of 1963. The film enjoyed mostly positive critical reviews during its initial release and has since enjoyed mostly positive critical response. The Great Escape was nominated for one Academy Award for film editing. In a 2006 poll in the United Kingdom regarding the family film that television viewers would most want to see on Christmas Day, The Great Escape came in third and was first among the choice for male viewers. In an article for British Film Institute 10 Great Prisoner of War Films updated in August 2018, Samuel Wigley wrote that watching films like The Great Escape and the 1955 British film The Coldest Story for all their moments of terror and tragedy, is to delight in captivity in times of war as a wonderful game for boys, an endless Houdini challenge to slip through the enemy's fingers. Often based on true stories of escape, they have the viewer marveling at the ingenuity and seemingly unbreakable spirit of imprisoned soldiers. He described The Great Escape as the epitome of the war-is-fun action film, which became a fixture of family TV viewing. The Great Escape holds a 94% rating among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 86 rating on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? In this movie, several Americans, including Hiltz and Henley, were amongst the escapees. In real life, American officers assisted with the construction of the escape tunnel, but weren't amongst the escapees, because the Germans moved them to a remote compound just before the escape. Did you know? Wally Floody, the real-life tunnel king, he was transferred to another camp just before the escape, served as a consultant to the filmmakers almost full-time for more than a year. Did you know? The real camp can be visited today in Sagan, Poland. It's a ruin now that's mostly used for archaeological purpose. A replica of the camp is located 40 kilometers, 25 miles south, where you can enter a model of Tunnel Harry yourself. In the movie, they confuse the actual names of the tunnels. Did you know? Some aspects of the escape remained classified during production and were not revealed until well afterward. The inclusion of chocolate, coffee, and cigarettes in Red Cross packages is well documented, as is their use to bribe Nazi guards. Other materials useful for escaping had to be kept secret and were not included in the book or screenplay. 
Also not revealed until many years later was the fact that the prisoners actually built a fourth tunnel called George. Did you know? Charles Bronson, who portrays the chief tunneler, brought his own expertise and experiences to the set. He had been a coal miner before turning to acting and gave director John Sturgis advice on how to move the dirt. As a result of his work in the coal mines, Bronson suffered from claustrophobia, just as the character had. Did you know? Sir Richard Attenborough said many years later, working with Steve McQueen on this movie was one of the toughest challenges he had ever faced, and their on-set relationship was not peaceful. McQueen was not combative, but he wouldn't hesitate to let anyone know if things were not as he would have wished them to be, or believed that they ought to be. Did you know? The real-life escape preparations involved 600 men working for well over a year. The escape did have the desired effect of diverting German resources, however, including a doubling of the number of guards after the Gestapo took over the camp from the Luftwaffe. Did you know? James Garner developed his scrounger character from his own personal experiences in the military as a self-described scrounger for his company in the Korean War. Did you know? Several cast members were actual POWs during World War II. Donald Pleasance was held in a German camp, Stalag Luft I, Hans Mesmer in a Russian camp, and Till Kiway and Hans Reiser were prisoners of the Americans. Pleasance said the set was a very accurate representation of a POW camp. Did you know? Donald Pleasance was an air crewman in the Royal Air Force during World War II, whose plane was shot down upon which he became a prisoner of war and was tortured by the Germans. When he kindly offered advice to director John Sturgis, he was politely asked to keep his opinions to himself. Later, when another actor on set informed Sturgis that Pleasance was imprisoned in a World War II German POW camp, Sturgis requested his technical advice and input on historical accuracy from that point forward. Did you know? During idle periods while this movie was in production, all cast and crew members from Steve McQueen and James Garner to production assistants and obscure food service workers were asked to take thin, five-inch strings of black rubber and knot them around other thin strings of black rubber of enormous length. The finished result of all this knotting were the coils and fences of barbed wire seen throughout the movie. Did you know? During production, Charles Bronson met and fell in love with David McCallum's wife, Jill Ireland, and he jokingly told McCallum he was going to steal her away from him. In 1967, Ireland and McCallum divorced, and she married Bronson. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing Reservoir Dogs from 1992 for its 30th anniversary this year. Written, directed, and starring Quentin Tarantino, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and Steve Buscemi. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, who is your best performer? Well, I thought about this for a long time and paused and went back and forth, and it's so easy to select Steve McQueen. So I don't do this very often, but I'm going to give a tie and I'm going to say Steve McQueen because obviously this was a film that kind of cemented his star power in Hollywood. But I really enjoyed Richard Attenborough's performance. He exemplified the British mindset of being very understated, 
very confident, very oriented to being a leader. And I, I just really enjoyed his performance overall, including not just leading up to the escape, but the attempt to get away following the escape. I'm going to nominate, I think, both of those moving forward. No, I guess I didn't do Attenborough myself. I was very close to doing that. But I think there's a much more obvious choice as to the best performer, because if there's one thing that really lives on from this movie, other than Steve McQueen being a badass, it's the music. The music controls the tone. It sets kind of the theme of the movie and enhances the motif, if you will. And it gives it a forward momentum that I don't think just about anything else in the movie really does. It's the thing that seems to unite all of the various pieces that are going on within the course of this three-hour movie and gives it momentum that it never seems to lose. It's bright. It's brilliant. It's positive. It's defiant. And even up to the last moment of the film where McQueen's getting put back in the cooler, it has this way of convincing you, despite the fact that there were 50 men that were killed for this, this was worth it in the end because they did their duty to help the cause of the war. And so I think Elmer Bernstein, as the composer, gets my best performance. Interesting choice. I can understand your points. Just probably outside my normal range of thinking on this. You've nominated composers before. I think that, if I remember right, the Magnificent Seven composer might have been one that you had nominated previously. Yes. But if there's anything that convinces me that he is the best performance of this movie, it's that continuously, through putting all of my notes together today, I kept (laughs) on a loop whistling this to myself. It's just too catchy. Yes. So it's best secondary performance. I went with the only Oscar nominee for this film, and I'm going completely off the board, a name we have yet to mention for the entire course of the show so far, Ferris Webster, the editor, because I think this is actually a fairly well-edited movie. It's three hours and doesn't seem to lose that sense of joy the sense of momentum, the kind of positive outlook, the way that this seems bright and yet humorous, despite its circumstances or its context. I mean, these are guys in a POW camp, and it seems more like a precursor to Hogan's Heroes. (laughs) Yeah, okay. For me, that secondary performance was James Garner. Again, this is a situation where Garner was so good at times with just being natural. He just appeared that the way he was was kind of the way he really was. And interviews I've seen of him later and such, he just had a knack for being able to portray a character with a certain element of himself that was so clear and so common that you had a relationship, you had a you had a rooting interest, you could relate to his character. And 
everything I've seen James Garner in, whether it was a Doris Day film, whether it was the Rockford Files, whether it was going back to the early days when he was doing Maverick, to the notebook for that matter. He just had a certain way of presenting himself that was just so endearing. And so he he might be one of the last actors of the old time genre who was really a star that basically portrayed himself in a lot of his roles. John Wayne, James Garner, James Stewart. I don't know how many others I could point to that the characters they played were reflective of their own personalities. Uh, We've talked about Tom Hanks being that. We've talked about Jack Nicholson being that. We've talked about many actors essentially being a character of themselves. Essentially, Tom Hanks as a ship captain who gets his boat taken away from him. Tom Hanks as a guy who is shipwrecked on an island. Tom Hanks as an astronaut. Tom Hanks as et cetera, et cetera. Or Jack Nicholson as a private investigator. Jack Nicholson as a former astronaut who is trying to bed the next door neighbor. Jack Nicholson as this caustic author who is mentally handicapped. Yeah. All right. Point taken. But to be fair, just to take your point, I do think that James Garner is a less heralded light version of John Wayne. He's got a calm confidence about him that is charismatic on its face. And he brings a sense of bravado and gravitas to any role he imbues. And that's why I'm not sure why he wasn't in bigger roles. He seems like a guy who could have been leading action movies. I know. And I I don't understand why his career kind of took a turn differently than it did. I think he could have potentially had a much bigger career than he did. Because, you know, I can sit here right now and tell you scenes and things that I've seen him in or from various films, television, whatever, that are still very memorable to me. I can bring back episodes of The Rockford Files that I still remember to this day because how well he portrayed them. But, oh well. My most charismatic is the obvious. I went with Steve McQueen because this is a complete Steve McQueen is a star role. Steve McQueen does almost nothing in this movie that's anything other than Steve McQueen is a badass. Yeah, yeah. And that's who I have as well, because again, Steve McQueen is a badass, and he just had a persona that a large portion of American males either wanted to be Steve McQueen or be like Steve McQueen. And that's what made him so charismatic, because a lot of men just really wanted to be him. Thumb their nose at traditional society, thumb their nose at uh, normal social norms, and he did it. If Steve McQueen had been healthy into the 80s, I think he could have had an action career mirroring that of what Liam Neeson is now. I think easily. I could see him doing, quite frankly, the Bourne series. I could see Steve McQueen doing those because those Bourne books were written in the 60s and early 70s. 
I could see those being done in the 80s with Steve McQueen in them without batting an eye. But I could have also seen Steve McQueen do something like Die Hard. Oh, easily. Easily. I think Steve McQueen would have been awesome in that part. All right, let's go to best scene then. There are quite a few of them to nominate, but I will try and go through these one by one. So the day one escape attempts, which I will separate from the second scene that I have nominated, which is Hilt's testing the security measures, because I think that deserves to stand alone by itself. So the day one escape attempts include everything from jumping in the back of the trucks to trying to sneak away with the Russian workers. And then Hilt's testing the security measures and rolling the ball. Part of the reason I separate that one is, is I think that's a very famous scene by itself as to what you think about about this movie if you remember certain parts of it. And I think that's one of them. Then Hendley scams Werner. So that moves the story forward quite a bit. But it's really probably James Garner's best scene individually. Hilton Ivy tried to burrow, which I think is just humorous by itself. Then we get Independence Day. So they make the, I guess, would you call it vodka? They said moonshine, but how can you make moonshine out of potatoes? It's vodka. Yeah, it, it it would, to me, seem like it was vodka. Anyway, then progressive myopia. So, obviously, Colin getting the kind of, like, they relate it to being almost blind, but then they specify that it's not actual blindness. Yes. Then we get to the night of the escape, which, that's a whole long sequence. I think that's, what, 20 minutes? It's at least 15 minutes where they're trying to go through the tunnels and you've got multiple different character arcs being accomplished throughout the course of the film. Then catching Roger and Mac, so Mac slip up in order to uh, catch them in the act and then getting chased down. Hiltz's motorcycle getaway, which I don't need to give much explanation for that. The French resistance, so that's James Coburn with the French resistance fighters and trying to get to Spain. And then the last scene, the 50 men gunned down. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene? Well, to be honest, I think you've, you skipped over, which is there was a whole series of small scenes of them constructing the tunnel. Everything from they're singing to hide this, they're doing things to hide using the hitch axe to break through the floor. All of those setup scenes to me, were so well done and so well portrayed the heart of the film that I hate to just gloss over them. But the problem is, how do you separate out all of those individual pieces? I mean, yes, you named those, but there's probably 30-second scenes in between all of them. That's why I consider them as one piece. But that's like an hour of the film, then. I know. (laughs) But... Collectively, that's my favorite part, is just seeing the ingenuity of what they were doing in order to come up with the tools, the methods, the mechanisms, the efforts to cloister what they were doing, right down to the scene where Hiltz is taking the slits out of the bids and Cavendish comes in and jumps into his bed and falls all the way through from the top bunk through the bottom. Those are the scenes, to me, that make the heart of the film. 
because it shows the efforts they went to in order to achieve their goal. And so to me, that's my best scenes because I think it shows so much of what they were going through in order to achieve their ultimate ending. Well, I agree with you that the first two hours of the movie is much more rewatchable than the last hour. Once they get to kind of the escape attempt, I feel like the movie loses a lot of its momentum because, yes, it's been building up to that, but what makes the movie successful is kind of the screwball nature of how they've gotten to the point of actually attempting the escape. And it seems to get much more serious and much more dramatic in the last hour. I think that's where it kind of loses a lot of the forward momentum that it has through the first two hours of the film. The problem is, is I don't know how to break that down. I know. To be honest, I had a problem too, because even though they're different scenes, they're almost mirror images of themselves. My most indelible is the escape efforts, because... Every time I think about this film, I go back to thinking of how they're trying to get away and who ends up dead and who ends up ultimately escaping and then ultimately leading back to the execution by machine gun at the uh, behest of the Gestapo. So that always is what I remember the most about the film, which ultimately leads me to think of that as being my most indelible. So which scene is that? Again, it's basically, I'm having a difficult time separating from the point that they leave the tunnel until they're all brought back to the prison or dead. Because it's one collective of multiple scenes that don't last very long. But they're all collectively what impacts me. I mean, I always remember how Richard Attenborough is captured. I remember how Hiltz is driving the motorcycle. I remember how James Colburn gets hooked up with the underground. And those are always, their redemption or lack of redemption is always what is locked into my memory. And I can't separate them. Maybe it's because this is a film that I've seen so many times and I know which scene leads to the next. I have a hard time breaking them apart. Well, I broke them apart, but I'll just do mine since you've already put forward all your best and most indelible. For me, I'll say the best is actually the first kind of those two scenes that I split apart. The day one escape attempts and then Hilt's trying to test the security measures. I think that does actually a very good job of introducing you into the film, giving you the context and what the story arc is going to be about without doing the traditional exposition of, well, we've brought together all the most dangerous escape POWs in the country and put them all here. Yes, there is a little bit of that exposition when James Donald goes into the Commandant's office, but it's not quite to the level where you get a sense of each one of these characters by the time that the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie is over. You know exactly the attitude and mentality of Steve McQueen, James Garner, James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Ives, etc., 
by the time we get to them being put in the cooler the first time, you know how defiant all of these guys are. You know their individual personalities and that they all are going to eventually unite behind a common goal of escaping together because it's not even necessarily in the writing. So I think part of it has to do with the direction. I think a part of it has to do with the acting. And then finally, I think the other aspect of it is going back to my best performance, the musical score overlaying all of that to give you that sense of what these guys and their drive is. As far as favorite scene, it's Hilt's testing the security measures. It's probably one of the more fun ways to set up, okay, not only is this guy ruthless in trying to escape, and he's looking for every little advantage he can, but he's going to actively thumb his nose at the German commander and not give a fuck. Early on, that sets up kind of how the momentum of the film is going to go. So for me, that's probably one of my favorites. And then finally, most indelible. All I remember about this film, other than the motorcycle jumps, is Steve McQueen being in the cooler. Because it happens like five times. I'm not even going to pick out one individual scene. If you wanted to even just say Steve McQueen bouncing a baseball in his cooler cell, I'd take that. One of the things that happened is when I'm watching McQueen in that scene where he's talking to the uh, commandant of the Stalag, I, I remembered back being in high school. Might have been sophomore year of high school. And I had a science class. And the class was supposed to be that if you had a problem with your pencil, if you had a problem, you could go to the uh, pencil sharpener and sharpen it. Well, I broke my pencil lid. Well, the teacher was having a bad day. And I got up to go to the pencil sharpener. And she said, sit down. I said, the policy that you set up and told us the first day of class was that we could go to the pencil sharpener if we needed to. So I'm going to the pencil sharpener. I said to sit down. I said, but you're inconsistent with your own policy. And she said, you have a detention after school today. And I said, oh, really? I said, for following your policy and procedures. She says, now you have two days. I said, okay. As long as we're at it, let's make it three. And she gave me three. And I sat there the entire time in her class after school for an hour and just stared at her because I'm a complete dick at times. At times? Yeah. I mean, isn't that like what the actual LSAT is, is measuring your level of dickishness? It could very well be. Anyway, the ironic part was is that I ended up having intro to geology and her husband was my professor in college. And apparently they must have talked because he one day, because I, I ended up with- Wait, hold a, on, hold on, hold on. A husband and wife talking? How novel. Yes. Because one day he talked and said, I understand you had my wife in high school as a teacher. And I said- yeah, I did. I'm not always happy how I did things or said things or presented things. And he goes, no, I understand. At that age and sometimes 
certain people have a tendency to push certain buttons. And I can understand how certain things were said and done. And so I'm like, oh, so in other words, he gets pissed off at her too. But I had no problem with Hank. Well, that seems like a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, just a quick note that I've been mentioning the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com for a few weeks now, and I've been working on it for the last couple of months. It's now finished and ready for everyone to see. You can check out the show notes for every episode of the show so far, as well as the master rankings list of movies we've done to this point. Just click on the Greatest Movie of All Time tab at the top of the site, and you can find everything right there for you. Please go check it out. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, Julie Powell, 49, American author, subject of the movie Julie and Julia, taken from her popular Julie Julia project blog at Salon in 2001, where she um, talked about her efforts to recreate the recipes of Julia Child. Yes, she's recognized as part of the rising tide of social media and internet home cooking trend that we've kind of had going on that really took off probably after the movie version of that came out. But her blog was very popular during the year 2001, where she was trying to cook her way through the 524 recipes of the original Julia Child mastering the art of French cooking, part one. And so obviously it wasn't all about each of the recipes that she had, but it had a personal tilt to it. And so she was a very affecting author. In many ways, you could credit her as being, along with the rise of the Food Network at the time, this kind of popularization of the foodie crowd that we kind of have going on right now. Good points both. Stephen C. Grossman, 76, American TV producer, most notable, he did the uh, New Art show. In addition to various directing and producing credits for several notable 70s and 80s TV shows, including, I think, the Mary Tyler Moore Hour and Mary, and I think he did Bob at one point, was a New Heart show as well. He was the co-president of the American Association of Producers in 2001 when the group merged with the Producers Guild of America. And at the PGA, he helped launch its Diversity and Inclusion Committee that is still in existence to today. We also lost Andrew Duncan, 95, American actor. He was in the film Slapshot. He was in the film Love Story, The Hospital, and was in the film uh, Used Cars. Yes, he specifically played the announcer Jim Carr in the movie Slapshot that we discussed earlier this year. But was also part of the first Second City Review in Chicago in 1959, so one of the original Second Cityers. We also lost a Hollywood and rock and roll icon, Jerry Lee Lewis, 87, American Hall of Fame singer. He did Great Balls of Fire, whole lot of shaking going on, high school confidential. He was known as a pianist was part of the original group of Sun Records with Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. The Million Dollar Photo, which is taken at the Sun Records studio, passed away this week as well. And we would be amiss if we didn't mention his 
rather complicated and, well, frankly, there's no better way to put it, horrifying off the stage contributions to his life. And I don't think I could do it justice just sitting here and trying to list off the many issues he had outside of music. So what I will tell you is, is that on the website, there is a clickable link to a Rolling Stone article that I thought was extremely well done in highlighting both the musician, but also his many faults. He is a (laughs) controversial figure to say the least. And I think some of those things, if you did not know much about Jerry Lee Lewis, like I did not, would be shocking to you. But nevertheless, you have to get the full picture of the man to appreciate, I guess, who he was in this life. I will always tell this story, which is when I was a very young man, before I was married or even dating my wife, I had a subscription to Playboy magazine, and they did an interview in the early 80s of Jerry Lee Lewis. And I remember the last interview question, do you have any advice for the public? And Jerry Lee Lewis's closing line of the article was, well, son, one thing I've learned in my life is pussy is pussy. Said the seven-time, I think, married man and serial adulterer. Correct, who a lot of people think murdered at least one of his wives. And also married a 13-year-old. Correct. There's a film of his life with, oh, not Randy Quaid. (laughs) That would be interesting. What was the other Quaid? Dennis? Film of his life with Dennis Quaid that's worth watching if you want to understand or see something about Jerry Lee Lewis, if you're not aware of it. Honestly, I think that uh, Jerry Lee Lewis movie, given all of his many foibles, would be much more entertaining if it was Randy Quaid. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah. Randy Quaid always struck me as a guy who, when they talked about say no to drugs and they cracked an egg and fried it, that's my impression of what Randy Quaid's brain currently is. All right. So with that, we recognize those that have passed this week with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Best Funniest Lines? I only have three nominees. This isn't necessarily a dialogue movie. How many do you have? I have a few. Maybe three, maybe four. All right, I'll start out here. Ramsey. Colonel Von Luger, it is the sworn duty of all officers to try to escape. If they cannot escape, then it is their sworn duty to cause the enemy to use an inordinate number of troops to guard them, and their sworn duty to harass the enemy to the best of their ability. By the way, in the historical accuracy section that I saw, this is not actually something commanded in the British handbook for officers. Correct. Just throwing that out. This is a line that I uh, use at least a dozen times a year. It's the only few times I drink this crap. But tea without milk is so uncivilized. Blythe. Hilts. How many are you taken out, Bartlett? 250. 250? Yeah. You're crazy. You ought to be locked up. You too. 250 guys just walking down the road just like that? Hilt, wait a minute. 
Are you seriously suggesting that if I get through the wire, encase everything there, and don't get picked up to turn myself in and get thrown back in the cooler for a couple of months so you can get the information you need? Bartlett. Yes. Ramsey. Roger's idea was to get back at the enemy the hardest way he could. Mess up the works. From what we've heard here, I think he did exactly that. Hendley. Do you think it was worth the price? That depends on your point of view, Hendley. Von Luger. Are all Americans officers so ill? No, 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 no. No, I'm not going to let you do the German accent and make you sound like a caricature here. This isn't The Simpsons. Von Luger. Are all American officers so ill-mannered? Hiltz. Yeah, about 99%. Von Luger, then perhaps while you're with us, you'll have a chance to learn some. Ten days isolation, Hiltz. Hiltz. Captain Hiltz. Von Luger. Twenty days. Oh, and you'll still be here when I get out? Cooler. Do you have any others yet? No. All right, I'm out too. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Would you like to go first or second? I'll go first. Legacy. This film has risen as time has gone by. I mean, this film is as old as I am, which on a given morning is really old. And it continues to rise and be recognized as a war classic. I think it's held in high esteem among insiders, critics, people who know people who are cinemaphiles. I'm going to give it, a, as far as legacy for the industry, a five. As for the public, as I was growing up, this is a film that everybody knew and everybody talked about. And I'm now going to be 59 next month. And people of my age, when you mention the film, still immediately have a memory of it and a relationship to it. It's starting to age out where younger people do not have the same connection to the film. So I have to give it some reduction for the public over time. So I went with a 3.5. So an 8.5 overall. Well, that's interesting. I did not give it a 5 for the industry. I don't think it's recognized among a lot of other ones that we would nominate for five as far as accolades. It is not, or it has not been, what is it, dedicated or retired by the Library of Congress or the National Archives. It is not celebrated as necessarily one of the preeminent classics. I think from an industry standpoint, Saving Private Ryan, The Bridge on the River Kwai, some of these other films are celebrated ahead of it as better works of art. This was more popcorn fodder, and so it was always going to appeal to the audience a little bit more because it's a star-making military film. It has a lot of pieces of it that are just stars being stars. And even though it's stripped back and it's bare bones as far as the actual plot and the escape attempt and the rest of it, and is just the story without giving you a whole lot of character background or expose on any one of them. They just kind of are in the middle of this plan. It works as a film. 
And so it's a very simple story. It's not about any of these greater themes. It's a very easy and understandable and simple film. I just can't put it against some of the great old-time war classics that have a little bit more gravitas to them from a critical standpoint. So I went with a 4.5 there. As far as an audience film, I actually went a little bit higher than you did. We ended up at the same overall score, but I went with a 4. And for many of the same reasons that you did. I think there's a generation gap developing where this movie is clearly among you and your peers. Kind of what the Shawshank Redemption was for people that were cable conscious in the 90s. It was a film that was present, that was around, that people knew and had seen. But my generation, I honestly don't know how many people I could say know the film or have seen the film. And so it does give it a little bit down, but I do think this is a relatively popular military film by comparison to some other ones. I think it's much more likely that somebody from my age group has seen this movie compared to The Bridge on the River Kwai. I can see that. I mean, I come to this probably with rose-colored glasses because when I was a kid, we played World War II. I mean, we would have our guns and we would go out and a friend of mine who uh, I'll just use his name for the hell of it because I don't know if he's ever listening or if anybody is, but Dave Hooker was one of my friends from grade school and we would play army. We would uh, portray that we were Americans fighting the Germans in the yard. And even later when we were doing things, we would have model or plastic army men with the plastic tanks and all that. And it was the same thing. So maybe I'm a little, I have a more nostalgic view of this film than what others would. That's likely, but nevertheless, it's an 8.5 for both of us for an 8.5 overall score or average score. Impact significance. This received almost no awards attention, was a generally liked but not lauded film, and it was not highly received at the yearly box office. While I think that many in your generation knew of the film, how much of it was later on into the late 60s and 70s after the five-year window we talk about in the initial impact of this movie? I think Steve McQueen was already a star, and this just was another bullet in his gun of great and starring roles of the 60s for him. I don't think this is the movie that necessarily made him an A-list star. I think he might have already been there. And nobody else from the film, can I really say, had a stellar career off the backing of this film. But I think a lot of people still know it. So from an audience perspective and from an industry perspective, I gave it a three for each for a six. The industry had okay, but not great reviews. So I went with the 3.5. I think the public appreciated the film. It was well received. It was uh, admittedly only six, I think, for that year, as far as gross. I said 16 earlier. I thought it was higher than that. No, in fact, I can tell you the films that finished ahead of it. Bye Bye Birdie. The Sword in the Stone, Charade, McClintock, Dr. No, Son of Flubber, 
How the West Was Won was the number two film of that year. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World was number three. Great film. The top grocer of 1963. It's an Elizabeth Taylor film. I'm not sure. Cleopatra. Oh, yeah. And then that year's Best Picture winner, a film that I've had many personal rants about, not on air, but at some point or another with the family, finished number four that year, grossing over three times what this movie did, Tom Jones. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'll reduce the public to 3.5. So I'm going with a seven. All right. Well, that makes the math still pretty easy. That is a 6.5 average between the two of us. Novelty. You mentioned at least one other POW film that you think was better and before this. POW films were not novel at the time. They're still not novel. There have been a lot of them. And while this is probably the most famous and possibly the best of the bunch for its humor and driving confidence, I can't go particularly high because it seems kind of run of the mill as far as that. So I'll give it a point above the median for being the best of the bunch and go with a six. Well, like I said, Stalag 17 was an extremely well done film. I believe it was Billy Wilder. I believe you're correct. And uh, Bill Holden. It's it's one of my favorite. One of my, if I had to pick a, a top 25, Stalag 17 would probably be on that top 25. So I have to give it marks down, but I wouldn't go as quite as low as you did because there still wasn't that many. I mean, Bridge Over the River Kwai was a POW film. Stalag 17 was a POW film. So I'm going to go with a 7.5 for novelty because of that. I did the research. There were at least 25 other films predating this one that were POW films, including The Bridge on the River Kwai and Stalag 17. But there were also several independent British films that did the same thing, and most of them were concerning World War II. Mm. I'm not familiar with them. I think you've given lower points to other movies for very similar stuff. And might I add, this is an adapted screenplay, which you have constantly given points down for because it's not an original material. Okay, I got it. You can stay with your number. I'm going to. I'm going to stay with my number. I told you I'm having a difficult time because... As I indicated before we ever started recording, when I was talking at dinner with your mother, I was going to have a hard time doing this film because every time I think of this film, I think of sitting and watching it with my dad. So it's going to have a certain color to it that may not be objective. Okay. Would you like to go first or second on classicness? Go ahead. Well, it gets points off the top for me for its rife historical inaccuracies, such as the central placement of several Americans in the story of the movie, uh, or the fact that they couldn't even get which tunnel was named which tunnel, correct, which kind of seems to be a significant portion of the film. 
I will give it a point up for its timelessness, but if we're starting at a baseline seven and we subtract two points and add one back, what does that give us? A six. Please tell me this is the first one you're going to give a full 10 to so that we just have that on record. No, I can't. Okay, I'm not giving it points down because it's a World War II prisoner of war film. Of course there are not going to be any females in it. All right, so I can't give it that. And diversity, well, no, I can't do that necessarily either. All right, because even the British military kept the provinces separate. Well, the U.S. military wasn't integrated until the 50s. No, it was integrated in 48. 48, okay, that's right. It was still under Eisenhower. No, Truman. Eisenhower didn't take office till January 53. Okay, all right, yep, my bad. So, all right, I'm going to give it an 8. Okay. Simply because I think... Even though it's not historically accurate, I think it did a fairly decent job of portraying the efforts that were undertaken by Allied troops or soldiers to continue fighting the war, even though they were prisoners. All I'll say is, is that the title card at the beginning, for the most part, is extremely correct as to what the point of the film was going to be. That... They were not concerned so much with getting every individual character and some 600 different men worked on the project to try and escape. Trying to fit that many people in a movie was always going to be an enormous task. So you had to make composite characters. And they had to change certain things about certain characters. And yes, you had, I guess, a Polish-British or a Polish-defect character and an Australian, and the rest of these, those were the three that escaped, even though I think it was like two Swedes and a Dane in reality. Yes. Very small things like that. But overall, does that change the nature of the story as to telling how things were done in a POW camp, how they went through this general escape, etc.? No, I think for the most part, this is fairly good at capturing the essence of what was happening to these guys, even if it doesn't get their story correct down to the letter. Rewatchability. I'll let you go first. All right. I watch this film every one or two years. If it's on, if I'm flipping through channels and it happens to be on Turner or AMC or some other channel... I will stop and watch this film. If I know it's coming on, I will watch it. At least once or every other year at Memorial Day or Veterans Day, I will rewatch this film. It's part of my being, my it, it's part of my childhood, it's part of my essence, it's rooted within my soul. I mean, I don't use that term loosely. There are just a few films that I will automatically rewatch because they speak to me. This, Patton, is another one. 
that I rewatch because it's just my essence as a historian, as a person, as everything. So 9.5. Didn't go for the full 10. No, because 10 has to be something that I rewatch at least on a regular basis. What's a regular basis? I own a copy of the film and I only watch it once every 12 to 24 months. That's not a regular base. Okay. I have it as a seven. Like I said, my biggest drawback with the film is that the last hour kind of drags for me. The first two hours are incredibly enjoyable and rewatchable, but once they get to the escape attempt, I just feel like the movie switches gears and it's not as enjoyable for me because especially if you've seen it once already, you know what's coming and that kind of uneasiness just doesn't sit well with me. It's not the same fun as you had for the first two hours of the film. So do you need help with the math? That's an 8.25 between us audience score for this one. We had an 88% for Google users and a 95% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.15 score. So to repeat the categories, we had an 8.5 for Legacy, 6.5 for Impact Significance, 6.75 for Novelty, 7 for Classicness, 8.25 for Rewatchability, and a 9.15 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 46.15. And any guess as to where it places on the list? No. It is currently between The Great Dictator and just above Rio Bravo. Okay. Is that okay for you? You seem like you have a a certain attachment to the film that uh, I I don't want to disrupt for you. Yes, it does. Okay. Remaining questions. I really only have one, and it's the same one that I've always asked. Why do you date the documents for travel and everything else, your visas or whatever you use to get about, before you've checked out where the end of the tunnel is? Because once you dig up into the sod, you create a hole that will easily be discovered. So you can't do it until you're ready to move. I don't know. There's just something that doesn't sit right with me that they were 20 feet short and couldn't have anticipated that. Yes, obviously you can't get out and pace it out so that you can like truly measure, but there had to be something better, and especially because you could see where the uh, woods were in comparison. To me, to be spending an entire year digging and you are still 20 feet short, boy, that's hard to swallow. The thing that I thought about it was is, Obviously, when you reach the woods, when you're digging, you're going to not be hitting sod or just general ground. You'd be hitting tree roots. When you reach tree roots, you'd know you were in the woods. It's a good point. I don't know. It's the one thing that I've always thought about that I'm wondering about. But that aspect is based upon the actual film, or I mean the actual historical situation itself. So I don't know. Well, for guys who seemingly thought of just about everything else, that is somehow escaping them, for lack of a better term, just seems odd. 
But yeah. Regardless, any other remaining questions for you? No, I'm, uh, again, I mean, this is Ronnie Duncan Studios, and, um, I don't know, anytime I have a, a film that I have a connection to my dad, I always think about it. In retrospect, you know, I had a lot of problems because I wasn't sure. <sighs> he had a very rough childhood, and I'll, I'll express that. And he had a difficult time learning how to be a father. But, I mean, I loved the man and I um, tried to help take care of him in later life. And in retrospect, I realize how much he really provided to me and made me who I am. So I hope others have the same ability to appreciate their fathers. Well, that's a good sentiment to, I guess, end on for the most part. Any other remaining thoughts? Nope. Just looking forward to the end of the year and the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday and then our Christmas holiday and the films we have coming up. So I'm going to suggest a new series that we picked up last weekend that I thought, both from its premise to its execution to the actual writing of the show, is great fun. And I wasn't sure what to expect when we sat down and put it on for the first time. But the new series Reboot on Hulu is actually a lot of fun. And I think it's very clever in its premise and execution. And so I would recommend that to anybody looking for kind of a new sitcom. It's only eight episodes and they're about half an hour apiece. But something very easy and light to try and get into if you got some time and just need something to fit in between whatever you're doing. I will add that uh, a film that I really enjoyed, I happened to watch this past weekend, All Quiet on the Western Front. The remake. It's a remake. It's a German-made film. I thought did a very commendable job. I know that they offered it for, or introduced it for best foreign film. Having watched a lot of foreign films over the last several years doing this show or the last few years doing this show, I think clearly this is going to be the benchmark. It's going to be difficult for anybody to overcome this as being the best foreign film at the Academy. And I will say that it's likely that this will get a nomination for Best Cinematography the photography or how they handled the cameras throughout the film was so well done. You can just sit back and realize the artistry and the beauty of what they were doing in the middle of a film about destruction and death. It just was overwhelming at times as to how beautiful the shots were. I have not yet seen it. I will watch it at some point here, but I have a feeling it's going to have a high bar to cross for me. I've said for a while now that at least in the top five of all-time war films, in my opinion, is the original All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930. I think that's one of the better movies that's ever been done about war and the horrors of war. And it has a dubbed English version but that was also a German-constructed film at the time that won Best Picture. And so 
it's taken from the diaries of a German soldier on that point and gives the point of view of what, at least ordinarily, and if you ever attended an American history class, was always seen as the enemy. Even though I think in World War One there really weren't enemies per se, just people we were mistakenly fighting against. It's not the morality war that World War II often is played out to be. Yes. I mean, half of the individuals fighting in that war, the leaders of the country, were all cousins. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing Reservoir Dogs from 1992 for its 30th anniversary this year. Written, directed, and starring Quentin Tarantino, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and Steve Buscemi. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new Studios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.